every Green Diva needs a sidekick. At the Green Divas radio show, they're called Green Dudes. Time now for a deeper shade of green from a guy's perspective. Well, you know, if you people knew what it took to make this phone call work, this phone interview with this amazing guy, you would know how special, extra special this is. It's been like uh, if Mercury were retrograde. Um, but I didn't give up because I'm such an admirer of this man and have been for a long time. And I'm guessing you will know of him and you will know of his work for sure. Paul Hawken is... Um, and we've quoted him. You know, he probably doesn't even realize that. We're like, we've quoted him on memes, you know, making points on our Green Divas stuff. Uh, you know, he's an activist from way back. He's an entrepreneur. He's a journalist. He's an author. Uh, you know, you've heard of Smith & Hawken, Erewhon Foods. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. But I just want to get in to talking to this inspiring man. Hi, Paul. Hi, good morning. Thank you so much for, you know, being flexible and patient as we work through making this phone call happen. Yeah, as long as your listeners understand that I wasn't recalcitrant. It wasn't me. Oh, no, 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 yes. No, please, God, no. No, it was like this comedy of, you know, things, but uh, I just, I th it was funny. So anyway, you had to be there. So one of the things, as I was kind of reading up, and, you know, I thought I knew about Paul Hawken, and I'm reading up, and I see that he was really present, I mean very present, and I think as a journalist, during the civil rights movement with Dr. King, and, wow, we started talking about that before we were recording, and you had some interesting things to say about tying it in, and by the way, this will be airing on Earth Day, so we are sort of tying it in, so... Yeah, tell me about your experience working with Dr. King and the movement. Well, I was um, <clears throat> went down to Selma, Alabama, and um, before the March on Montgomery, and it, it was sort of all hands on deck. Uh, there wasn't at that time there wasn't that many people, uh, and so um, I was asked to be a press coordinator, which just to register the press and. It, turned out that I was doing interviews by default but uh, with the press but um, so I was basically a fly on the wall uh, <laughs> for the March on Montgomery and then when the march started then I was a marshal which uh, means you had an orange thing on and <clears throat> you were trying to organize what, what happened in Montgomery because by that time a hundred thousand people had come and you know famous entertainers and you know movie stars and things were there the night before the march, entertaining the people on this rainy, wet, sodden high school playground, you know, yeah. where we all camped out and gathered and slept in the in the rain wow. um, before the march in the morning. But I did get a chance to really spend a lot of time um, listening to some of the great, great orators in the civil rights movement. Certainly Martin Luther King was one of them, uh, and and if not the best, and but Jesse Jackson and yeah. Abernathy and so many others, uh, and it was just a fantastic experience for a white boy from California. I'll tell you that, <laughs> and um, you know, call and response, you know, Baptist church, you know, <laughs> it was like whoa, you knew something 
was happening. I mean, yeah. it was so crazy in the town, the tension, the anger from the white people. You didn't even dare to go into the white section of town. I mean, you were safe in the black section. I mean, as a white person, you were safe in the black section of town. You were absolutely vulnerable in game when you were the white uh, part of town. I mean, even as a white person, if they knew that you were working on the civil rights movement, you were like a target. You know, it's, it's even more. They could tell a block away that you were working for the civil rights movement. They could just see it. Yeah. They could tell you were an Easterner, Northerner, outsider, yeah. that you weren't a Selman and an Alabama. And it was crazy. You know, they would come right after you. I mean, it was... Uh, so how, uh, how, how, how threatened were you? And were you actually physically threatened? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. There and then I I came back and and then worked for Cora as a photographer and so then as a photographer I was oftentimes right between the marchers and and the people yelling epithets and <clears throat> screaming and you know threatening and so sometimes they would go after the photographer and um, yeah I mean we yeah we were shot at in a car we were chased we were arrested I I was the first person who went into Meridian, Mississippi, where those three young oh. uh, workers were uh, tortured and killed, Schwerner, Cheney, and Goodman, and, oh. um, and then John Doerr, uh, uh, who from the Justice Department got an injunction against the Ku Klux Klan that they could no longer march with uh, hoods uh, anonymously, and yeah. I was sent in to photograph them on that fateful day, and so that was another uh, rough day for me. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Because they hated me because I was photographing them, and so they beat me up and stuff. So, and then after they beat me up, I was arrested, of course. Oh, lovely! So you get beat yeah. up and then thrown in the perky. Yeah. yeah, and that night they put gasoline on the roof of the our quarters, and we, they didn't get a chance to light it, but we we, we could smell it. And wow! They were going to burn it down. So, but when you get a chance to really see human nature and it's you know kind of most divisive. Um, confused, hate-filled form, it's actually very interesting because that, it sounds strange when I say this, but it's, it's within all of us. And yeah. No, <laughs> like, I believe it. Let's be real. And it's in, it just, it's everywhere in the world. And, and, and you can just see how ignorance foments uh, uh, attitudes and opinions and beliefs, you know, that are so off the mark. And this applies so much to the environment, to climate change, to Keystone XL, to so many of the pressing issues today are still, it's the same mechanism yeah. of, of confusion, of ignorance, uh, and people acting in the worst interests. And so all the w- w- white people in the South who were suppressing and oppressing uh, black people and anybody else of color, for that matter, uh, were hurting themselves. Yeah. They, they were they were destroying trying to destroy an amazing resource which is these brilliant talented creative people that we call African Americans but I mean that's who they were well, and they and were y- extraordinary and as all people when they have a chance to you know be fully human well you'd like to believe that just like we all have that kind of that that potential for you know hatred, ignorance, and violence. We all also have, and so do they. Those people, those very people, have the same potential for uh, you know love and healing and you know enlightenment. And 
so I'd like to believe that they were really just mired in fear. And and that same kind of uh, categorization could go on with sort of the coal rollers and, and the, the deniers here that, that really – I don't – really understand why they're afraid? I mean, to some degree, it's just this sort of cultural, I don't want to change my stuff. Well, I think a fear is fomented by um, politics and politics Greed. Um, paid for by business. Yeah. And, and this morning on Face the Nation, Marco Rubio, who is running for president, uh, was asked about his statement that climate change was not human cause. And, he, and what he said was that he said that what I, he was trying to clarify himself and say, well, I didn't say it wasn't caused. I'm saying we don't know how much of it is caused by humans, mm. and, and you know, science can't tell us that. And he said, but what I can tell you and do know, that those people, whoever they, you know, those people <laughs> those who want people. to do, you know, cap and trade and this and this, you know, to change, you know, the situation, do not know and cannot tell us when it will change and how, and they will destroy the economy of this country. That I do know. And so there you have somebody yeah. basically using a, 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 the, the threat of insecurity, economic insecurity, as a wedge issue to marginalize science and, and those who care about the very thing that he is saying will happen, the very thing right. will happen if we don't pay attention to climate change, you know, which is jobs will be destroyed, farms will be destroyed, lives will be destroyed, communities will be dismembered. That's exactly what's going to happen. And he's right, but it's the opposite. It's like if we don't pay attention to it. So so fear is a very, very powerful motivator. It always has been. Our brains yeah. are wired that way. Yeah. I mean, we came, you know, in, in evolution, you know, from creatures who had to pay very careful attention to threat. It's, it's number one. And we're in a transition to, you know, world where we're being responsive instead of reactive. And yeah. so reactive politics, you know, is fear-based, and responsive politics is aspirationally based. So, all right, so you were clearly inspired as a young man to get involved with civil rights and activism, and that had to have played a role in the amazing career and the accomplishments that you've had since that time, um, and can you kind of talk about the, how this evolved into sort of your um, organic, ha ha ha, uh, you know, your natural tendency towards environmental issues or whatever? Well, when I was 20, after, <clears throat> I mean, because when I was in civil rights, I was 17 and 18. When I was 20, um, I started a small food company that became fairly big company, but uh, in Boston, and uh, at the end of seven years, I had 40,000 acres, this was 1973 then, uh, under contract, uh, yeah. and it was or organically farmed. Some of it had been organic, but the fault, some of those, a lot of the acreage was uh, converted to organic <clears throat> agriculture because I had a company that could buy it and pay more. Um, and in that process, I learned a lot about business. I knew nothing about it. And I also uh, learned a lot about, you know, what had motivated farmers to move from biological agriculture to chemical-based agriculture right. and gave me a lot of compassion, actually, for <clears throat> farmers. And, mm -hmm. and my grandfather was a farmer. I grew up on a farm. So I, I didn't 
take it on as sort of a, you know, like they're wrong and right. they're good farmers and bad farmers. I just thought I could see it as a systemic issue yeah. that had just permeated the county agents and the USDA and all impelled by money. I can tell you that. And, yeah. and, uh, and sales and, again, fear and, you know, you lose your crop if you don't use this pesticide. All that sort of stuff was at play. But it also gave me a very, very uh, uh, keen sense of what we were doing to the environment. And I remember being with a farmer in Louisiana, uh, and uh, he was an organic rice grower for my company. And um, these guys were mostly really conservative, Republican. You know, it's really interesting for me. Cause that I is interesting. I don't think every. I don't think people you know, would necessarily think that. They were good guys, you know, and we were driving along, and he was using, you know, obviously his own rice, it was organic, and planting it, and he, we went to a field, or drove by a field, and there was a dead pelican, and I said, well, what's going on there? And he said, well, it's, you know, he's eating the fish, and the fish are eating the rice, and the rice is coated with captan, which is a mercury uh, fungicide, and... and and I, I realized then, uh, looking at the pelican, you know, that, that this, the, the environment and food and health and politics and money and corporate greed and, you know, which we all impel by our own investing and how we buy and what right. we buy. But, I mean, all this was just so intricately connected. And uh, it really, not that I hadn't started working with the environment I had. I was grow, grew up in the Sierra Club when I was a kid, but, but it just... I knew what I needed to do for the rest of my life, you know. What I wow. wanted to do, really, was to really, you know, deal with these issues and see if we could fix them. Well, and, and you've made that in- intimate connection between all of these things, which is what I, 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 you know, have been talking about it since the 80s when I lived in the Berkshires and we had a little organic co-op and we're supporting our small organic farmers and we understood that back then and other people just thought we were all crazy hippies and which you know we were but we yeah we were (laughs) (laughs) but and i I remember your company being like oh cool you know because there weren't that many organic and large organic uh farms and products available Um, yeah so it was cool stuff um i had another question and it just sort of evaporated because i'm just sitting here um you know just thinking about the time that's that's how evolved and how things have evolved. Now, are you founder of the Natural Capital Institute? Well, the Natural Capital Institute was a, a 501c3. I started, yeah, yeah. To, to research. We did research for a lot of, on water and on environmental prizes and this and that. We also started Wiser Earth. And now we have um, a thing called Project Drawdown, which is the main focus. In fact, we don't even call it the Natural Capital Institute. We call it Project Rada. Okay. Um, so we renamed it. Uh, and that is uh, about climate change, pure and simple. Yeah. Well, so if you were to leave our audience on this Earth Day 2015 with one sort of thought or piece of advice from all that you've learned and gained over these years, what, what might that be? Well, <clears throat> I mean, the... the cliche that everything changes um, <laughs> that uh, and it doesn't mean it's always for the worse I mean Project Drawdown is about really looking at the hundred most substantive solutions with respect to mitigation of climate and, cl- and carbon sequestration and then measuring 
their impact over 30 years if they scale in a sort of rigorous but reasonable way and to see if we can achieve drawdown, which is uh, a term that describes the first time on a year-to-year basis where carbon goes down mm. in the atmosphere as opposed to goes up. Nice. And um, it is just an exciting, wonderful thing. We have a coalition of 200 institutions and people and scientists and analysts and postdocs and universities and NGOs and government agencies all working together to make the list. And what's happened is that Bill McKibben did this wonderful article in 2012 that scared the pee out of people called The Terrible New Math About Climate Change. Yeah, yeah. And, and what the irony is that <clears throat> for years prior to that and after that, you know, no one's ever actually done the math on all the solutions. No one has done the math. Not the IPCC, not any NGO, not the UN. No one has done the math. Overwhelming and scary thought, and yes. And we are doing the math. All and right. And, um, and so our solutions include the obvious things of solar and all that, but they include food systems, low-carbon diets, uh, uh, girls' education in the developing world, which has a huge effect on reproductive rights and, and in the, which affects you know, carbon just like everything else. And so it's a really great project. And if I well, would say anything hopeful is that I think, again, humanity knows what to do, but we all pay attention to what humanity doesn't know more than that. I love that Project Drawdown and what you're focused on there is connecting the dots between all yeah. of these things. and. Yeah. Um, that is hopeful, and we always try to focus on solutions here because there is a lot of scary numbers and scary math and uh, doomsday predictions. But um, I'm so glad you're doing the work you do. And can people find um, Project Drawdown easily online? Yeah, www.drawdown.org. Uh, yeah. Well, it's that simple, folks. Go check it out. Get inspired, get involved, do what you got to do, and um, you know, let's let's make some good stuff happen. Draw down, baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm really you know, losing. I want to say one thing: if you don't name the goal, you won't reach it. Yeah, I and think stabilization is not the goal. I, the goal. I agree. I think that uh, it's 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 um, important to visualize and and yeah, put a put a clear goal out there. And I'm just babbling. I could talk to you all day and listen to you all day, and um, I'm sure we'll get to talk again at some point. I appreciate your time, and um, thank you again, Paul Hawken, everyone. Want more information on this Green Dude segment and other ideas for low-stress green living? Go to thegreendivas.com. That's T-H-E, greendivas.com.